You know, I don't often think of a title for my preach. Um, I kind of just preach it, and then afterwards somebody comes up to me and says, what was the title of your preach? So we can put it on the website, and I just try and come up with something. But this morning I've got a title. So if you're taking notes, you've got a title. And the title of my preach to, uh, this morning is, Good is the Enemy of Best. Good is the Enemy of Best. Um, before I had the privilege of... Um, being paid by the church to do what I do, I, I had a proper job, like, uh, like most of you guys. Uh, I was a, a, sale, a national sales manager for a company, and, and I was pretty good at sales. I was good at presenting something and persuading and overcoming objections. And one of the objections, a common objection, if anybody's in sales, maybe you'll learn something this morning that will make you more money, but one of the common objections when you're trying to sell something to somebody is, well, we don't need that because what we've got works. Yeah, that's a reasonable argument, isn't it? I was selling uh, computerized timekeeping equipment. You know when you clock on for work? Instead of punching your card, it would all be computerized and done for. And it was an amazing system. Saved companies loads of time and loads of money. I don't work there, so I'm not trying to sell it to you now, but... No commission in it for me now. But I would go into businesses and they'd say, yeah, that's nice. But what we've got works. And my response to that would usually be something like this. Um, so where's your horse? So what do you mean? I said, surely you came to work on a horse this morning. Because if we'd always responded, but what I've got works, nobody would be driving a motor car. <laughs> yeah? Because a horse was perfectly good. It was perfectly adequate for the day. But if you think about it now, if we're still all relying on horses, yeah? When cars first came in, it was poor people had ri horses, rich people had cars. Now it's rich people have horses. <laughs> you see, if I just settle for what I've got is good, it stops us walking in what's best. Good is the enemy of best. If I think I'm doing a good job, it, it's hard to receive criticism. It's hard to receive direction. It's hard to receive encouragement and input because, I, hey, I'm doing good. I don't need to improve. This is adequate. And unfortunately, that can enter into our spiritual lives as well, into our spiritual thinking. I hate good meetings. I do. I hate nice meetings. You know, where you come, you sing some, you have some nice worship. It's a nice preach that was interested, and maybe there was a couple of jokes in it. You know, we connected with a few people and had a decent cup of coffee, and then we went home, and it was nice. Librarian's nice. You know, the old auntie down the street is nice. Nice is not a word we should use to describe Jesus very often. He is nice, but you know what I'm saying? He's, it's like, it shouldn't just be good. It shouldn't just be nice. There should be something more to it. And my Christian walk shouldn't be good enough. It shouldn't be accurate, uh, adequate. My zeal and passion for Jesus shouldn't be adequate. And the way I do things shouldn't be, well, it's working, so it must be okay. Because the other thing is, 
Even though what you're doing may be working, it might not be the right thing. And it might have an appearance of working. And here's the thing, when we come into the church, is we can build in a way that appears to be working, but actually isn't. Some churches are way bigger than this congregation. Thousands of people, mega churches, 10,000 people. And you go, well, that's working. Well, I don't know if it is, because they've got a crowd of 10,000. But how many are sold out for Jesus? And I'm not saying it's not working. I'm just saying you can't, just by observing numbers, say it's working. And so it is with our relationship with Jesus and our responsibility before Jesus, because we've all got a mission, right? We've all got a purpose. We've all got a task. And we've got to complete this task as faithfully and as well as we can. And I often kind of use the metaphor for, for, for Jesus asking me to fulfill my mission for him is something like when my kids were really small and asked if they could help me fix my car or do some DIY jobs or cook a meal. I, I just knew that it was going to take much longer with them than with them. They weren't helping me. They were getting in the way. They were making a mess. I was petrified of them hurting themselves or destroying what we were supposed to be fixing. But I would say yes to them helping me. Why? Two reasons. One, because by helping me do what they couldn't do, they grew and become more proficient. And secondly, and the more important reason is we got to hang out together, together and it built relationship. So why does God depend on us to do his work for him? Why does he insist on partnering together? And we don't do it in place of him. We can't do anything of value outside of his power and outside of his spirit. But why does he choose to rely on us? Because surely it would be so much easier if the day you got saved, you just got taken up into heaven immediately, right? No struggle, no backsliding, no temptation. You know, I, I kind of think as an elder, it would be easier if we could just get people saved than take them around the back and shoot them. <laughs> Our lives would be so much easier. I'm only half joking. <laughs> so why does Jesus leave us here? He leaves us here to fulfill his purpose because he wants to partner with us. But then we in our foolishness, think, well, God needs me and I'm so awesome so I can figure out how to do it my way. And it seems good to me. And just, I don't know, but for me, there's kind of a pattern in the Bible. When somebody just says, it seems good to me, things go wrong. <laughs> when people say, it seems right to us and the Holy Spirit, things seem to go better. <laughs> yeah. In the book of Judges, the book of Judges is a time where it says of Israel, and each man did what he was convinced in his own heart to do. And Israel just kept getting smacked. And so it is within the church. That's why we need leadership. That's why we need unity. Because if everybody just has, adopts this attitude of, well, I can hear God, so I'm just going to do what I feel to do, it's a, and it's a good thing, we have no unity, we're not going in one direction, all our resources are split, and we're not pulling to the same direction, and we're not getting the benefit of synergy. It's rather like, and I, I don't know whether I should mention this this morning, it's rather like rugby. 
Northern Hemisphere weekend, eh? Yeah, Ireland beat New Zealand, England beat Australia, Scotland beat Argentina, France beat Japan, and there was another game. What was the other one? <laughs> no, all week they were insisting it wasn't a B-side. <laughs> we all know it was. <laughs> but in rugby, have you ever noticed when... In a test match, you've got scrums and they seem even and they seem even and then suddenly there's a scrum and one side destroys the other. You go, how did that suddenly happen? And then the next scrum, they're even again. And it's the margins are so small that in a scrum, if the guys aren't bound so tightly together, pushing exactly in the right direction at the right time, they get destroyed by the opposition. And so it's not that they're not bound. It's not that they're not pushing, it's just they're not as tight and they're not as directional, they're not as focused and they're not as in unity as they should be and then they get pushed backwards. And so it's not enough to be full of zeal. Everybody who's playing for the Springboks is excited about playing for the Springboks, I would hope. They're full of zeal. And so they're on the field and they want to win, they want to do the best. But if each individual player decides what he's going to do because he knows best, the team's going to get hammered. He's got to play according to a game plan. And sometimes that isn't what suits him. It's what suits the team. And that's the nature of the church. So what often happens in churches, you have a church and you get people who are full of zeal and they want to do things for the Lord and that's great. But if you don't allow yourselves to be steered and directed in that, then you're actually not as productive as you should be. So one person goes, oh, look at all these homeless people. Let's go and minister to the homeless. And somebody else goes, no, we're not doing enough worship. Let's have worship evenings. And somebody else says, no, we've got to go out on the streets and evangelize. And somebody else says, no, no, we've got to, we've got to train people, so we've got to have training evenings. And somebody else says, no, but what about the nations? And I'm going off to Africa. And somebody else says, no, no, but, but what about Europe? And, and then everybody's running in their own direction, using all the resources, all the finances, all the time and all their energy just scattered and we wondered why we're all exhausted and not seeing the fruit that the Lord has promised us. And so I want to address what does what does it mean? How how do we respond? How do we walk in God's best? And the first thing, Ephesians 3 verse 10, and this is a key for us first of all. In fact, I'll start at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul's speaking here, and first he says, I've been given a gift and a calling. Right? We've all been given a gift and a calling. The problem is most of us say, I've got a gift and a calling, I'm going running after it now. But wait, first of all, I've got a gift and a calling. To me, though I am the very least of the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, that mystery is Jesus. I want to reveal Jesus in the gospel to the Gentiles. We've got a bit of a a ring, is it me, is it? So So... So my job, my mission, my calling, my passion 
is to bring the knowledge of God's purposes to the Gentiles. How or why? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ. God's eternal purpose. If you want to know God's eternal purpose, it's this. To reveal his glory through the church. And what is man's chief end? What is our purpose of living? The Westminster Catechism actually asks that question and gives the answer. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do I glorify God? Well, according to this passage at least, I glorify God by being part of his church and revealing his glory through the church. I don't reveal his glory by being an independent kind of lone ranger. That does not reveal the glory of God. And people say, well, I've seen 10 people saved. I said, that's wonderful. 10 people have been saved by the grace of God. But that's good. It's not best. Don't justify doing the wrong thing by saying you've had good fruit. It's like me being a bad parent. And sometimes I've been a really bad parent and my kids grow up amazing and say, see, I get all the credit. No, they've grown up well despite me. Sometimes people get saved despite you. Our churches grow despite us. And so it's through the church. And so the first thing, if you are passionate about Jesus and you're passionate about serving him, then you've got to be passionate about the church. And the problem in the last, certainly, almost 2,000 years um, is that people have not been passionate about the church, not been harnessed by the church, not been discipled by the church, not been directed by the church, and not been sent by the church. And so what happens is, because the church has, has been deficient, because the church has not been doing her job, because the church has neglected her mission in many cases, other things have sprung up. And so, and I'm saying this as somebody who went to, I went to a Bible college, it was Africa School of Missions, it was a missions college. I came from England to South Africa to study, like missions is not something that I think is from hell. But I actually don't think missions organizations are from heaven either. I think they're from man. And I think God has used many of them. And many of them have done great works. And when the church has not done its job, maybe God has raised these organizations up as a necessary tool, but it's not God's best. God's best is the church. God's best is not a missionary going out on his own and trying to preach the gospel. The best is the church sending people to plant healthy churches. Because it's not enough to get people saved. We've got to disciple people. And how can we disciple people in the fullness of what God has without church? And the church has three main purposes. The three main purposes of the church. One, to worship God. Two, to reach the lost. And three, to, di to disciple the saved. And it's like a stool. The minimum number of legs the stool can have is three. 
And if you remove one of those legs, you tend to fall over. And the church for years has been falling over because it's not been built according to God's pattern, according to God's blueprint. People have not been careful how they've built. And so in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, I won't turn there, you can read that in your own time. Paul's writing about, by the gift grace God has given me, I'm a master builder. And each should be careful how he builds building on the right foundation, and then being careful what we build with. So we've got to be careful what we build on and what we build with. So some churches are building on the wrong foundation. The right foundation is Jesus. Now, I was in Brazil a few years ago, and I preached this, and these guys came up to me afterwards, and they were confused. What do you mean? We've got to build the church on Jesus. So I tried to explain, and it's a bit hard with a translator as well. And one guy says, I've got it. I'm going to take all my, all my church through a six-month course on, on uh, Christology. No, that's, not building the, that's building the church on teaching. <laughs> building the church on Jesus isn't giving people information about Jesus. It's building the church on a relationship with Jesus, in obedience to Jesus, listening to Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'll build your church. And he didn't say, you'll build my church. And building on the foundation of Jesus saying, Jesus is the more, most important thing and everything goes around that. So if you're a visitor, we'd love to be, for you to enjoy it so much this morning that you come back. But I'll be honest, our primary conversation shouldn't be, how do we get our visitors back? Our primary conversation should be, how do we welcome Jesus back? Because what's the point of having visitors if Jesus isn't here? And please, we want you to come back if you're visiting. We really do. And if there's anything you see that we're doing that, that is off-putting or offensive, come speak to us. But if we build on a foundation of being welcoming to visitors, sometimes that conflicts with being welcoming to Jesus. Welcoming visitors and being open to visitors is a good thing. It's not the foundation. Some churches go, you know, we can build by having a rocking worship team. And in order to be on the worship team, not only do you have to be a proficient musician, you've got to be attractive looking as well. I know one church where, uh, and you have to audition, a lady auditioned and musically she was as gifted as anybody else and they said, sorry, you just don't have the right look. Seriously. Because we want to project an image. You know what image I want to project? We're all just normal, weird, goofy-looking rejects and sinners who love Jesus. And if we can worship him, so can you. But great worship is a good thing to have. But it's not a foundation. Great teaching and preaching is good to have. But if we build the church on teaching and preaching, we're building on the wrong foundation. And so our foundation is Jesus, but then it's what we build with. What do we build with? What are the tools that we build with? And that's, it's values, it's not systems. And here's the problem. This building now is fine, and it's comfortable, and it keeps us dry. But if there was a, it echoes a bit. <laughs> it echoes a bit. But if there's a big hole in the roof then kind of over there. Okay. 
But if, if this was everywhere, it wouldn't be much use to us. It, it, wouldn't, be a good, it wouldn't be a functional place. And in fact, there's, there's instances like where people have a, a house and it needs massive renovation, and you see people move into a caravan at the side of the house. Now, is a caravan, can you live in a caravan? Yeah. You can, you've got a bed, it keeps you dry. A caravan can be good even for a week. But I don't know of anybody who wants to live permanently in a caravan compared to a nice house. But that's a picture for me of the church over the centuries, actually, where the church has been so broken down in certain areas, people have parked something alongside the church that will do the job. So my building doesn't give me a dry bedroom, so I'll have a caravan. The church isn't reaching the lost, so we'll have a missions organization. The church isn't discipling people, so we'll have a Bible college. I don't think Bible colleges should exist. Certainly not in the traditional format. I don't think people should go to university to study theology, unless you want to backslide. You know, most Bible colleges are built on the same model as, of universities, which works like this. The, the more qualified you want to be, the more specialized you have to get. So you, you study more and more about less and less, right? Until you know everything about nothing. <laughs> That's how universities work. <laughs> but discipleship. Teaching in the church is the ideal. Parachurch is not God's plan. They, some of them do good work. I'm not, I went to Bible college. And I thank God for my time there. But that's not God's ideal. And so we can say, well, it works, we'll keep it. Or we can say, it works, but it's not God's ideal. And we want to be people who are zealous and sold out for the household of God. Jesus when he was walking the earth in the temple, there was a bunch of people trading in the temple. And they were actually, if you know the temple, there was the inner courts, then there was the outer courts. And beyond the outer courts, there was a little wall past which the Gentiles couldn't go. And outside of that wall was where all the tables and all the merchants were set up. And what they did worked. Because if I, as a good Jewish man, wanted to go to the temple, I needed my offering, I needed my tax. And so it was convenient, and it worked that those moneylenders were there. But Jesus came, and not only he turned over those tables, partly, I think, because some of them were dishonest and making exorbitant profits. But I think more than that, because Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. What he was saying is, these tables... And these traders are taking up the area that the Gentiles need to be brought to. So it's good, but it's undermining my purposes. And so that's why good is enemy of best. Do you hear what I'm saying? Church, we've got to fall in love with church. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul is writing to husbands and wives. And he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives and lay down your lives for them, just as Jesus laid down his life for the church. Now, I often hear preachers go, Jesus died just for you. 
If you were the only person that ever lived, Jesus would have died for you. And that is true, but it's not the whole truth. Because Paul could have said that. Love your wives and lay down your life for them as Jesus laid down his life for you. But he doesn't say that. He says, lay down your life for your wives as Jesus laid down his life for the church. It's the church that he's passionate about. And if we're passionate about him, we have to be passionate about the things he's passionate about. If we're connected to him in covenant, we're connected to each other in covenant. And if the church is functioning well, it's like that, that, that stool with three legs. Some churches only have one leg. They're all about worship. Then they're not a church. They're a concert venue. Some people are just about reaching the lost. Then you're not a church, you're a missions organization. Some are just about discipleship. Then you're not a church, you're a training center. I don't want to lay down my life for a training center. I want to lay down my life for Jesus and his church. And the word church, most of us will know this. The Greek word that, that is translated church, or the most common Greek word, is ecclesia. And ecclesia was a word that was used in Greek before it was used in the Bible. And if you had, you know, Greece, before it was one nation, was lots of different city-states like Sparta and Athens and all of these places. And in a lot of these city-states, only certain people could vote. The citizens could vote. Like, Sparta had way more slaves than citizens, right? The population of Sparta, you know, they said they had democracy and women could have the vote and all. That was true, but only if you were rich. But sometimes they would call a meeting of those who, who, who were citizens and they would say, we, we have to call a meeting because there's something we need to do. And that gathering was called an ecclesia. It was the gathering together of those who'd been called out for a specific purpose. And so you take three things there. Called out, uh, gathering, called out, and purpose. So the church is gathering we can't be a church on our own. You know, some people say, me and my family, we're doing church on our own this morning. Sorry, no, you're not. You can worship God as a family. You can worship God as an individual. You can pray as an individual. You can't do church as an individual. You can be part of the... We don't go to church, we are the church. No, it's both. You are the church and you go to church. Because Ecclesia is a gathering, it's a belong, so, so it's, it's gathering of those who are called out, his holy ones, those specific people with the privileges of citizenship of heaven, and for a purpose. So you're here for a purpose. You're not here to be a pew warmer, you're not here to fulfill some obligation to God. Coming here every week is not going to get you to heaven. We come here in response to what he's done. Just as he gave everything for us, we now say we'll give everything for him. And one of the ways we do that is to give ourselves to his church, that thing he loves, that thing he died for, and that thing that he has chosen since the beginning of eternity as the vessel through which he will display his glory. It's awesome. Think of the privilege, guys. And we so easily slip into the thinking that church is an obligation, a duty, that the elders are going to chase me up if I don't go. 
If you miss on a Sunday, I hope you, I hope you get a phone call from somebody asking where you were. But not, where were you? But I hope you get a call, hey, we really missed you. Your family. Are you okay? We're not the same without you. And as insignificant as you may think you are, we are not the same without you. Because we're all insignificant outside of Christ. But because of Christ, we all carry significance in him. So church is not an obligation. It's a privilege. It's a gift. It's a beautiful thing. And then this word ecclesia is is used two ways in the New Testament. It's used as a local congregation like this. And then of the church universal. And the church universal can be called an ecclesia. It can be called a gathering because one day we are all going to gather together. And then the good news is that we get all the best worship leaders in history leading us in worship. <laughs> David will be rocking and, you know. <laughs> but the local church actually is just an expression of the global church. And when we look in the New Testament, there was no such thing as an independent, autonomous local church that was just on its own. Every congregation, every church was joined to other churches. They were joined together, and they were joined together by apostolic gifts. These men that Jesus just gave to the church, and in Ephesians 4.12, which is why we're part of a movement called 4.12, it, it speaks about how these apostles were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry that we might be brought to unity and maturity. So apostles unite and equip and, and direct. And they're like, they're like the coach of the rugby team like, so that we can all push in the same direction and all feel that my contribution, even if it feels small, has been part of the victory. And Paul says this in, um, in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, it's on my phone, and my phone's in my pocket. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, 2 Corinthians, verse 10. Uh, chapter 10 from verse 13, we'll read it. And Paul's writing about his apostolic calling and his apostolic gift and his ap- apostolic purpose, and he said, but we, my team, because he's not operating alone, Paul's always with other guys. He's never a lone ranger. And he says, but we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence or the field that God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we're not, we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. But we do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. In other words, God has given me a field or an area of responsibility. I'll work in that. Other people can work in their field. So God has given me a field, he's given Peter a field, he's given somebody else a field, and I'm not going to stretch beyond 
the authority that God's given me. And um, when it comes to church, when it comes to life, when it comes to family, when it comes to anything, one of the keys to God's best is godly order. Scripture tells us where there is no godly order, there is all kinds of ungodliness. And so when we understand our authority and our responsibility, when we understand that bit of the kingdom that God has given us responsibility for and who to submit to and who to work with, then we see God's best coming through. When we're independent, unsubmissive, rebellious, proud, that's flesh, and flesh always wars against the Spirit. And we will never see the power of the Spirit moving as He should amongst us unless we know our proper place. But we don't boss beyond our limits. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. And so he's saying, I hope that as I'm faithful, I'll have more influence over you. And together we'll have more influence over more people. See, we always say we're not obsessed with numbers. We don't build church in such a way as to grow big numbers. But we are obsessed with being healthy, and healthy things grow. So we do want to see our congregation grow. We do want to see people saved. We do want to see Josh Jen grow. We do want to plant new congregations. We do want to see more churches partnering with 412. We want to see God's influence grow. But within the field that God's given us, and I've got a way of thinking that not everybody agrees with. So if you don't agree with this, you can go away, you can read some scriptures, you can pray about it, and then God will show you whether I'm right. <laughs> so often people say, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got these options. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do that? And often I say, I don't know what did God say. That's my first question. Because I don't want you obeying me. I want you to be obeying Jesus primarily, right? But often my question in helping somebody is, what was the last thing God told you to do? Because as a father, if I ask my kids to do something, I expect them to do it till it's done and then await further instructions. <laughs> it's good to show initiative occasionally, but what must I do? Well, what did, what was, where must I live? Well, where did he last tell you to be? And my default setting, yet yeah, we need a heart of, Lord, send me. That's a beautiful heart. Lord, send me. Isaiah, here am I, send me. Before he'd even heard where he was being sent. If he knew where he was being sent, he might not have been as quick to volunteer. But as much as our heart is, God, I will go, we've also got our heart of, God, I will go wherever you send me, and I won't go unless you're there. Moses said, Moses said, I will not go into the promised land unless you go with us. What he was saying is, I'd rather live in the desert with you than in the promised land without you. And it's amazing at the moment, I don't know what it is, whether it's ESCOM, the economy, crime, but so many people are hearing God to go to another nation. I don't know if that's God or if it's just the promised land. 
And the promised land is not the promised land without God. So having a heart to go if God sends is great, but the heart is, I won't go anywhere till you send me. I will be faithful where you last put me. Because if I'm not faithful where I am, if I go, what am I going to take? So many people think, I've got such big problems where I am. Let me just move somewhere else. No, you know what? Everything might be changed, but one thing will stay the same. You. You'll take your problems with you. And I know that because I've seen hundreds of people join Josh Jen and go, oh, I'm so glad I'm in Josh Jen. My last church, oh, the leaders were terrible. But you guys are awesome. I'm like, can we have this conversation in about three months' time? Because <laughs> three months later, they're telling us how awful we are because they're bringing themselves into the... Into... But apostolic means, it talks, apostolic means one who is sent. And like many concepts in Scripture, so the word deacon means servant. Who here is a servant? All of us, right? We're all deacons. So we're all deacons in a general sense. But who's a deacon? Who has the office of a deacon? Some of you. So the word deacon can be used broadly or technically. What about who can prophesy here? Well, scripturally, everyone who's a believer is capable of prophecy. Who's a prophet here? (laughs) Okay, what about um, elder? Some of us are older. (laughs) I'm elder, but who's an elder? And so words can be used. And so who's, who's an apostle? In one sense, yes. If you said, I'm, I'm a sent one. But it's not a went one, it's a sent one. If you just go, you're not an apostle. You're a wanderer. Bolton wanderer. <laughs> an apostle is one who's sent. And so God wants to send us. But it's so much easier to say, God's sending me to America. God's sending me to Australia. God's sending me to Israel. God's sending me to Brazil. Then God's sending me to my next door neighbor. God's sending me to that person I see on the street who's stinky and smelly and nobody loves him. Because I'm afraid he'll reject me, but I'm even more afraid that he'll get saved. Because what do I do now? Now he's my brother. <laughs> so we want to be an apostolic people. But apostolic doesn't mean going wherever you want. It means being sent. And it means first being faithful. Because if we all just go, going, is, going you can say is good. But it's not the best. And I was having this conversation a couple of weeks ago with somebody, and he asked me about good deeds, and he'd heard somewhere about the idea of repenting of our good deeds. And I thought about it. I said, actually, yeah. I think sometimes we need to repent of our good deeds. We don't repent of what we've done in obedience to Christ, but sometimes my good deed can be me trying to earn God's approval, and then it's, it's nothing to God. Sometimes my good deed 
is me trying to show everybody else how spiritual I am. Sometimes my good deed feeds something in me more than it feeds somebody in something in... Some people who go around feeding the hungry are genuinely doing it for the love of, of, of people. And some of it are doing it because they're feeling a need in themselves to be needed and to be loved and to be appreciated. Yeah? And if you're doing it to feed yourself, it's a good deed that's disgusting to God and you need to repent of it, even if it's a good thing. And I can guarantee you there's thousands of people around the world today in ministry doing good things. Maybe even planting churches, getting people saved. But it means nothing to God. Because it's not done out of relationship and it's not done in being sent. And that's why Jesus said on the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And you'll say, away from me, I never knew you. That's the one day you don't want to be sent. (laughs) My ministry is a good thing, but it can be an idol. My calling can be an idol. My My calling can be an enemy of best. Even if it's a godly calling, even if you've had a prophetic word, and this is bad... Um, immature or, or wrong immaturity or wrong thinking about the prophetic can be harmful because sometimes the prophetic come and it could say, Neil, I'm calling you and I, I can see you planting a church in Australia. That's, for an ex- that's not a prophetic word, that's just a silly example. Okay. But if Neil processes that wrong, he becomes so obsessed with planting a church in Australia, his heart is no longer here. He's not allowing God to use him in other things until he ends up in Australia. And so what if I I don't chase prophecy? I don't even chase calling. I don't even chase gifting. And for young people particularly, I want to say this. I, I was at a youth leaders conference and I was asked the question, how young is too young to be in youth leadership? And my answer was, don't seek youth leadership. Seek obedience to Jesus. Ask him what you want him to do today. And then it doesn't matter if you've got a a badge or a title or anybody recognizes you. Jesus will recognize you and one day say, well done, my good, faithful servant. So even ministry and calling can be an enemy of best if we allow it. I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying I've lived my life. When I was 14, maybe a bit younger, I received words about being an elder and being a preacher and all of those things. I ran away from it for 10 years. That's also wrong. Don't run away from the... I was disobedient for 10 years. But since then, you know what I've learned? I don't have a five-year plan. Maybe you do. I just... I struggle to hear God that far out. Seriously. I'm like, Lord, what, what must I do today? And yes, I've got some plans for this year. I've got some trips coming up. There is some degree of planning that is required. I'm like, Lord, I'm not chasing recognition. I'm not chasing ministry. I'm not chasing my calling. I'm chasing you. Because I could get all the ministry, all the recognition, preaching. In, in October, I'm going preaching to a pastor's conference of 500 pastors. It means nothing compared to the favor of Jesus, seriously. And you can get all of those things. And it can be the enemy of best. 
So what do I do if I feel I've got this passion, if I feel I've got this zeal, if I feel I've got this gift and I've got to be faithful with it and I feel I've got this calling to the nations? Then, like Mary, hold it in your heart until the right time. And I've noticed something, and this isn't a law, this is a principle. The more prophetic words you get about something, the harder it's going to be. If you get 20 prophetic words about something that's going to happen, get on your knees and pray. The reason you're getting 20 prophetic words is you're going to need them to keep you on track through all the difficulties. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. but <laughs> So what do, I, what do I do with all this zeal and all this passion? And my pro- Hold them in your heart. And just be faithful in the house where God's put you. He's put you in this house. So what I was saying, I got detoured. So this is the thing that everybody agrees with. You can pray about it and God will tell you. I'm in covenant relationship with Jesus. I can't just walk away from that. Covenant breakers in Scripture were dealt with severely. Right? It was a, a covenant is way deeper than a contract. And the language of the New Testament in Jesus' commitment to me reflects that. Nobody will snatch me out of his hand. You know, all of those things. But if I'm in covenant with Jesus, remember the story of David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan covenanted with each other. And after Jonathan had died and David became king, he said, is there any of Jonathan's family still alive? And the, the normal situation would be you'd kill anybody still alive from the previous king's family, right? That, that made sense because you didn't want them growing up and taking revenge. But David said, is there anybody? They said, yeah, this one guy who's a cripple. He said, come bring him to my table. I'm going to honor him. Because I was in covenant with Jonathan, the covenant promises extend to Jonathan's family. So because I'm in covenant with Christ, the covenant commitment I make with Christ extends to you. And the way that I walk out that, because a covenant can't just be some airy-fairy. Covenant means my friends are your friends. My family is your family. My debts are your debts. What's in my fridge is yours. That's why we say that. It's, it's a silly little line, but basically it's saying we're covenanting together. We're no longer individuals. We've been joined. And if that's the case, then within a local body like this is where that is lived out. So you're in covenant with each other, which means you can't just leave. It's almost like a, wet, a marriage. In a marriage, you can leave by death. Here, you can leave by death or being sent. Or, or the possible third reason you can leave a, a local body that you've been joined to is if that body is separated from the head that is Jesus. So if it's in sin or heresy, then get out. But if it isn't, you can't leave because you're upset. You can't leave because you're offended. You can't leave because the worship's better down the road or the preacher's better down the road. Or You can't. If you believe that God has joined you here, you're here. And if it sucks here, you're, you've got to be part of the solution. And if you find the perfect church, don't join it. Because the moment you join it, it's not perfect anymore. 
Because the church isn't some perfect organization. It's an imperfect organism made up of imperfect people. But we're joined. And when people just go, I've, I've, got this, I've got this mission, I've got this calling, I've got this thing, I'm off. No, you can't. If you understand covenant, you can't. If you understand covenant, you do what David did, was to be faithful in the house, even when he had an unfaithful king. He said, I will just continue to be faithful where God has put me. And David was anointed to be king and waited 20 years before he was crowned. He was told, the prophet Samuel comes, anoints him with oil, and says, you are Israel's next king. Most of us would go, that's good enough for me. The, prophetic, the prophet has spoken. I'm out of here. For 20 years, for 20 years he waited. And in those 20 years, God processed him so that when he walked in his calling, he was ready, prepared, and fruitful. Some of you will see no fruit for a long time. You know, there's a form of bamboo in China. You plant it, and for a whole year, nothing grows. And then the second year, nothing grows. And the third year, nothing grows. By year six, I think it is, year six, it grows 90 feet in 90 days. And you might be saying, God, why is nothing growing? Maybe it's going below the surface, and you're waiting for year six of 90 feet in 90 days. Other people will grow quicker. But it's not about comparison. It's about faithfulness to him. We've got to be faithful in the house because we love the house. Because we love Jesus. So be faithful. Make a difference. People say, I want to go to the nations and do X, Y, Z. You're not doing it at home. And don't fool yourself if you're not doing it here. You're not going to do it there. Ask yourself, is it about my ministry or is it about the glory of Jesus? I often have young men coming to me saying, ah, I feel I need to, could I get an opportunity to preach? I feel called to preach. And I go, yeah, I've got a great opportunity for you to preach this Sunday. And they go, really? Say, so, yeah, in kids' church. No, no, I mean, I mean preaching. No, do you want to preach or do you want the pulpit? If you're full of the word, you'll find there'll be places to preach. And even if there aren't, I remember the story of a, a young man in a church in Johannesburg. He was an elder, and he would prepare to preach every Sunday, and he was never asked. And every, every week he'd be prepared, and every week he's practiced in the mirror, every week he's come with his preach in his pocket, nobody asked him for years. For years, not one opportunity. And then the leader of that church felt or the, the, the team felt that the leader should go plant a church in Australia. And they prayed about who should take over. And this young man got a, a phone call one day and said, hey, we feel you need to take over leading this church. Are you ready? He said, I've been ready for 10 years. We prepare where nobody notices. We prepare for the love of Jesus, not for the glory of the thing. And some of you will say this, and it's amazing how we can make our flesh sound spiritual. But if I've got a gift, I must use it. And I was in an elders meeting one time, and elders are just as stupid as everybody else. <laughs> it's true, eh? We are. I mean, look at, look at the apostles. 
<laughs> we, read the, we read the Gospels and go, oh, Peter, how stupid could you be? We're all that stupid, okay? But we're in an elders meeting. And one of the guys, been around a long while, and he said this, he said, Andrew, he said, I've got a gift to be a teacher and a preacher. That's my calling. And one day I'll stand before God and give an account for what I've done with my gifting. And I don't want to be like the parable of the talents where the guy has done nothing with it. And so if you don't give me opportunities to preach and teach, I would have to go somewhere where I am able to preach and teach because I've got to be faithful with my gift. Does that sound spiritual? Does it sound reasonable? It's, it's actually not. So this was my response. after I didn't want to embarrass him, so I went to Andrew afterwards. I said, Andrew, I feel called to be a preacher and a teacher. And I know that I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account for how faithful I've been. So I want you to know that I will serve in whatever capacity you want me to because God has put you over me. And if you want me to preach and teach, that's fine. If all you ever want me to do is research and prepare things and give it to you so that you look awesome, that's fine. And if I never preach again, that's fine. And when I stand before the Lord and he says, what did you do with your gift? I say, I submitted it at the feet of the authority you put me under. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he'll turn to Andrew and say, what did you do with this man's gift? That's why none of us, not many of us should presume <laughs> to be leaders because we will help be held accountable for these things. Do you understand? We've got to shift our thinking sometimes. It's not your ministry. It's not your gift. It's not your calling. It's his. And you're not your own. Paul writes language like this. You belong to each other. You know, the, the, culture, of the culture of the world today is even like, why did you say my wife like she belongs to you? Well, she does. My wife belongs to me. But I belong to her. And I belong to you. And you belong to me. Because we all belong to Jesus. My gift doesn't belong to me. Nothing is mine. It's his. But when I call it my gift... No matter how beautiful the calling, the gifting, and the anointing is, it might be good, but it will always be the enemy of best if we don't build God's way, if we don't build according to the blueprint that he gave, if we don't build by the Spirit, if we don't build out of passion and relationship with Jesus, and if we don't build in a way where we're using the church as the vehicle to glorify God. So I want to urge all of us, don't be lazy. Don't be idle. Be faithful in the house. Be willing to go. Be willing to stay. You know the Great Commission is often mistranslated. Go into all the world is how, you, how most of us read it. The actual language is as you go into the world. In other words, wherever you happen to be and wherever the Lord's taking you, do the work. As you live life, preach the gospel. As you live life, love one another. As you live life, serve one another. As you live life, represent Jesus.
And if you're faithful in the little, and I am living testimony of that. I'm, I'm not being falsely humble. I'm pretty awesome at a whole bunch of things. God thinks I'm awesome. I don't disagree. <laughs> but I promise you, if I am anybody, if I've preached around the world, and I have, if I've seen people healed of, of AIDS and cancer and TB and broken bones and broken marriages and, and seen people miraculously give birth that were told that they couldn't have children, I've seen all of those things and God has used me. And I want to tell you, I was a nobody. And I'm not saying that I was a nobody. I wasn't captain of any school team because I wasn't on any school team. I was always... If I, was, if I wasn't bottom of the class, I was in the, top, in the bottom five. I wasn't, you know, kind of when you're young, everybody's got something. Some guys are good looking, some guys are sporty, some guys are funny, some guys are academic, some guys, none of the above. If I went to my school reunion, nobody would know who I was and nobody would remember me. It's not a pity party, it's just reality. I wasn't gifted in anything. But I took my nothing and I said, Jesus, use it. And he did. And then I said, use it. And every time since I've been in Josh Jen, Andrew or one of the leaders has said, I've always said, I'm willing. I'm willing. I'm willing. If you want to be used, if you want to be sent, if you want to make a difference, if you want to glorify Jesus, don't worry about being gifted. Just worry about being willing. And let's be a family of the willing. And then we won't see what's good. We'll see what's best. Can we pray? Lord, none of us have had anything to boast about. The best looking of us, the most talented, the most intelligent. We were just objects of wrath without you, useless. And you came and called us. And you dragged us out of that miry clay. You dragged us out of the grave. You dragged us out of the gutter. And you put your spirit in us and said, I want to use you to glorify me. We were useless and you made us useful. And we want to thank you for that and we want to celebrate that, that every single person in this room is useful. Every person in this room has a purpose. Every person in this room has a calling and a gifting and a destiny. Every person in this room can make us different and better. Every person in this room can reflect something of your glory. But we never want to forget that that is only by your grace. And we don't want to seize on any of these things as our rights. My calling, my gifting. I want to go. I've, we want to be those who lay everything at your feet and the feet of those that you've given to lead us that we would be faithful sons and daughters in the house. And I thank you that you've put us 
not in a perfect church, but in a healthy church. And in a church where we're passionate to get it right. And that's part of an apostolic field. And we do want to be those who go where you send us. We want to go on outreaches. We want to go to conferences. We want to, we want to go to our neighbors. We want to go evangelize. We want to go wherever you send us. But more than being sent is being faithful. And so I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would respond to you in willingness and in faithfulness. That we would simply do what you call us to do. That one day we will each and every one of us have that incredible privilege, that beautiful moment where you stand before us. You look at us and we gaze into your eyes and we see your approval and your love and you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We live for that moment and that moment alone. Come stir our hearts, Lord, that we'd be a people committed to your best. Not our best, not our preferences, not to what's good, but to your best. I just want to give a moment. I know most of us have been around church a long time. But for some of us, we've never responded to that initial call to be faithful to that call of salvation. To say, Lord, I don't want to live my life for me. I want to live it for you. What I'm hearing is scary. I feel unable, but I'm willing. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never totally given your life to Christ, and this morning something is stirring in you. You might not have even understood the preach, but something in your heart is responding right now. And you go, I don't know what it is I'm getting into, but I'm willing to find out. I'm willing to know this Jesus. If that's you this morning, I'd love you to have the courage to just raise your hand. Most people are praying, so nobody, nobody else will probably see, but I'd love to just be able to see so I can pray. So anybody this morning who needs to respond to Jesus and say, my life is yours. It's not mine anymore. Okay. I'm an optimist. So as an optimist, I'll take that as a sign that we all have surrendered to Jesus. But I'm not going to assume. So if you're here and you, you, you're not even sure whether you should have put your hand up or not or you were too scared, just grab Neil or myself afterwards. We'd love to chat with you and uh, talk about that. Guys, God is in the business of using remnants. He's in the business of using nobodies and rejects. And I'm not saying you're nobodies and rejects. But as I look around, I'm saying, if we are a coalition of the willing, we can change this whole area for Jesus. Sometimes preachers come and they say, you can change the world. And for me, that sounds nice, but I have, I have trouble believing it sometimes. Or people say, you can change your city. Even that seems a bit much for my level of puny faith, even though it's true. Even this suburb, some of you might think, yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. Can I reduce it to one thing? Why don't you ask the Lord, why don't you tell the Lord you're willing this week, 
to change one person's life. Lord, give me the opportunity to represent you to one person this week, to preach the gospel, or to pray for the sick, or to serve somebody in need. Lord, give me an opportunity. I am willing to change one person's life this week. I think we can have the faith for that, can't we? And then next week, Neil's going to ask for testimonies, and you're all going to be queuing up. Because we trust for God's best for us, not just what's nice. Amen?